Have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. While you're turning there, I want to give honor to the pastor for allowing me this opportunity. I know what he's going to do over at Vessel. It matters because the kingdom is bigger than one church, bigger than one building, it's bigger than one place. The, the, the kingdom is bigger than just our building, and we're thankful for what God's doing over at Vessel. Brother Taylor, he came and preached for us. Hey, you go ahead and stand up. People look confused right now. We're going we're gonna to read in a minute. Y'all should see the confusion I was seeing from my end. Like it, was, it was great. But uh, what he's doing today matters. What Brother Taylor's doing over there, it's a difficult thing to start a church. And we're thankful for the God that God is using him and that we're able to partner with him and help that happen. Give honor to my wife and Gentry for being there for me, everything they do. I spent a while up here yesterday, so I didn't hardly get to see them at all. And I'm thankful for them that they're willing to sacrifice and what they do for this to happen. Genesis 21, and I'm going to give a little backstory. Genesis chapter 21 opens by telling of the much-awaited birth of Isaac. And his father Abraham was 100 years old. His mother Sarah was 90. So this was a promise that was 25 years in the making. It was an undeniable miracle. Absolutely a miracle, no question about it. And when the time came for Isaac to be weaned, around two years old, Abraham threw a party for it. And obviously, Sarah and Abraham are at this party. But also, Hagar and Ishmael are there. Ishmael was Abraham's illegitimate son, whose mother, Hagar, who, who took place when they tried to help God. They're going to take a shortcut. They're going to help God out a little bit. Because we have a tendency to do that sometimes. And he was a result of Abraham and Sarah trying to take a shortcut. So, after this, there was always tension between Sarah, his wife, and Hagar, the servant. There was always tension. They never got along. There was always problems there. So with this backdrop, let's go into this text. And starting at verse 9, I'm going to skip around a bunch. 9 and 10 says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Or the word actually is Isaacing. He was pretending to be Isaac, which... In one sense, he was making fun of him, but it was also meant to introduce a narrative that he was trying to position himself as Isaac, that he was trying to become Isaac, and he wanted to be the heir instead of Isaac. And so, verse 10 says, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Let's get down to verse 14. It says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And when it says child, who's probably 14, 15 years old. She departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water, and the water was spent in the bottle. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him a good way off as if it were a bow shot. Everybody said bow shot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat and wept over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And skip finally to verse 19 and 20. 
And the Lord op- the, and God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. There are no accidents in the Bible. If something is in there, it's intentional. It's there for a reason. There's only so many words that can fit on a page. And if the writer took time to put certain words there, certain phrases there, it was their own purpose. And so if something looks like, if you're ever reading the Bible, and it looks like a throwaway line or just kind of a side, it's there for a reason. The writer's trying to introduce a narrative of some kind. He's trying to set something into the story that will come in later. So as Moses wrote down the story, there's a little detail that he slipped in that I want to focus on. In verse 16, it says, She went and sat down, sat her down over against him a good ways off as if it were a bow shot. In verse 20, says that Ishmael grew and dwelt in the wilderness and he became an archer. I believe today that God is going to challenge the people's faith. Not necessarily faith for a miracle, but faith in the sovereignty of God. That God is in control even when we don't see it. That my life is worth surrendering to God because even when I don't feel it, God is sovereign and God is in control. That God is above everything. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, which was and is and is to come. That God is the, the end all and be all. So today I'm going to be preaching about the spirit of the archer. And before we pray, I'm just going to warn you, it's going to feel like I'm wandering for a little while. And I promise we're going somewhere. So just bear with me for a while. We're going to lay a foundation and eventually, hopefully it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, just pretend that it makes sense. And we'll all just go with it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence, to worship together, to lift up your name. Lord, I pray you'll touch our hearts and our minds. God, so we can be the vessels you called us to be. Lord, to surrender our life at your altar. Lord, not to live it for ourselves, not for our own selfish ambitions. Lord, God, but to lay it down at the only altar that matters. God, I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live for my dreams, my ambitions. God, I lay it all down before you today. God, I pray you'll help me to give this the way you gave it to me and touch their minds and their hearts to receive it. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is the first time that archery is mentioned in the Bible. So it seems like the idea... The writer is trying to attach something to Ishmael. Obviously, archery existed already. He didn't invent it. But it's the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible. So the the writer is trying to imply that something about Ishmael and archery are connected. And so for us to understand what is being implied, we have to understand who exactly is Ishmael. But we're going to do Bible study today. For us to understand who Ishmael is, we've got to first understand who Hagar is, who his mother is. So after God gave Abram this promise that he's going to have a son and that Canaan was going to belong to him, a famine arose. And seemingly without consulting God, Abram, Sarah, and Lot, they gathered their things and they went to Egypt. Now something to understand about Egypt is in the Bible it's always a representation of sin. When the Israelites were trapped in Egypt, it represented sin, and God brought them out of sin through the Red Sea, which represented baptism, covered them with a cloud of fire, which represented the Spirit, and God delivered them out of sin. And one of his commandments over and over again in the law is don't have any dealings whatsoever with Egypt or with sin. Don't go back where you came from. So Egypt is a representation of sin. So to escape the drought, Abraham and his family, they went to sin. 
And while there, because what, that's what happens, they made some mistakes and they did some things they regretted while they were in sin and eventually they were sent on their way. As a parting gift, the king of Egypt gave them treasures and servants and among those servants was one Egyptian woman named Hagar. And so Abram and Sarah went back to Canaan but they went with this woman who represented sin in tow. This woman from Egypt, this woman of sin in tow. So eventually this promise that they're going to have a child was reinforced. They, they told, God told them again it's going to happen. And so Sarah got an idea. Since she couldn't have any children, she would allow Hagar to act as a surrogate for her. And it's something that was pretty common in those times. Somebody with wealth and with means, if they couldn't have children... They would have a surrogate mother, usually a servant of some kind would be a surrogate to them. And this child would be born and it would be raised as if it was a legitimate child of the father. It would be given all the rights. It would be the firstborn. It would be viewed as the father's child just like any other child would be. And so it would be the firstborn. It would be called the son of the father. But from the very beginning with Hagar and Sarah, things went off the rails. Because normally the servant understood that if I'm part of this situation, I'm a surrogate. And yes, that would have certain rights that I wouldn't have before. It would elevate my status a little bit. But it wouldn't be my child. It would be her child, not mine. But it seems like Hagar from the very beginning became arrogant and started to elevate herself alongside Sarah. She started to view herself as more of Sarah's equal than a servant. And it's very possible that because of Sarah's age, she decided and thought that maybe she'll replace Sarah as Abram's wife. And that she would take her place and she would be the one who would be blessed and all these things. So Sarah became angry with the servant and treated her so badly that she ran away. She said, I, just got, I can't take it anymore. I've got to get away from Sarah. And while she was running, an angel came and met her and told her, you need to go back. And Genesis 16, 10 the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against, or that means in opposition to all of his kinsmen. So, she did what the angel said. She submitted herself to Sarah, went back, and did what she could to serve Sarah. So from the very beginning, we see several things about Ishmael. Ishmael was the result of impatience and a lack of trust. He was the result of someone trying to shortcut God's plan and promise that they were going to take matters into their own hand. He's the result of that. We see that Ishmael was half father of faith, Abraham but also have sin, Hagar. He was, in essence, he was a half-truth or a manipulation of truth. He wasn't full truth. He was half-truth. We see that Ishmael would be blessed because he was a son of Abraham. Even though he was illegitimate, many nations would also come from him. And then we see that Ishmael would be difficult to get along with. He would be stubborn, donkey of a man. Could you imagine if God gave your mom a promise, hey, you're going to have a son and he's going to have many nations, and he's going to be a donkey of a man. Could you imagine that? That he's going to be very, very difficult to get along with. That he's going to have problems with everybody in his life. But that was the promise. That he was going to be stubborn. He was constantly going to be offended or at somebody's throat. He would be blessed 
But he was always going to be a thorn in Israel's side. He was always going to be working against the plan of God at work in Israel. He was always going to be trying to work against the purpose of what God was trying to do through Israel and through Isaac's lineage. And Ishmael seems to live this, lived up to this from the very beginning. He was picking on and mocking Isaac, who was likely two years old. So this 14, 15-year-old boy was picking on this two-year-old kid at his own celebration. He seemed to be immature and childish. His mother left him under a bush as if he was a small child. He was a teenager, so he was probably a very immature kid. And while it may seem unfair for him to expect certain things of him, he didn't view Isaac the way that he should because Isaac was the true heir. Isaac was the true son of blessing. And whether Ishmael liked it or not or whether he asked for it or not, Ishmael's real role was to elevate Isaac and try to advance Isaac's story. See, God has a tendency to pick the younger son. He picked Jacob over Esau. He picked Isaac over Ishmael. Over and over again, he picked the younger son over the older son. He went against what culture expected. And so Ishmael didn't ask for this, but that was his role was to support Isaac, to be there for Isaac. And when it didn't work out, they were sent away into the wilderness. Abram had finally dealt with the sin, Egypt, the sin that was in the camp. And it was the only way that Isaac was going to be able to fulfill his purpose is if sin left the camp. See, sin had to go for Isaac to flourish. Egypt had to go. And if we can learn anything from that is that God will give you a purpose. God will give you a blessing with sin in the camp. God will give you a blessing, a promise with with Hagar still around. But if that promise and purpose is ever going to flourish, at some point, we've got to deal with Egypt. At some point, we've got to deal with the sin in our life. God will call us. He'll give us blessings. Our blessings will even grow. But there has to come a time in our walk with God where we separate ourselves from sin in our life. See, holiness in our lifestyle, attitudes, or thoughts, they're not required for the promise to be born. God will show up in your sin. But they're necessary for that promise to be fulfilled. For that purpose to be fulfilled, there has to be a moment of separation in our life. Ishmael and Hagar, they went into the wilderness. And so they ran out of water in this desert place. So Hagar, not knowing what to do, left him to die. The Bible says she walked a bow shot away. Or it's about the distance an archer could shoot an arrow as far as it could go. Many scholars believe that it was about half a mile is what they considered a bow shot. And so she was far enough away where she couldn't see him and most likely wouldn't be able to hear his weak, parched, dry voice calling out. She didn't want to be around with what was going on. And once again, she was visited by an angel. And the angel showed up and, and showed her where, where a well was. And the angel gave her life and sent them to Paran. So he was raised and developed this skill of archery, which made sense. He's in the wilderness. So you really don't want to chase everything down. It'd be nice if you could just shoot at it every now and then. You don't have to get too close. You can hunt or fight if necessary from a distance. You don't have to chase it. It makes sense. And if you look at Ishmael's life, it seems like a natural weapon of choice because he had always been pushed away. He had been pushed away by his own father. Father pushed him and sent him on his way. He was passed over for a birthright, and it wasn't even his fault. His own mother left him to die and walked a bow shot away. 
So the distance that an arrow could travel was the closest anyone was to him in the lowest moment of his life. So he decided, I'll make that my weapon of choice. The bow shot, the arrows. That I wouldn't have to get too close to anybody. And if anybody did get too close, Ishmael could hurt them before they could hurt him. Because Ishmael was an archer. So what exactly is the spirit of the archer? It's the spirit of Ishmael that works from a distance to attack God's plan. And we see it at work in several forms in our world today. I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. I love social media. I think it's great. I have social media. Uh, I don't live in a cave. I live in a house with electricity. Love it. Especially right now because it's hot. Even more broadly, I don't think media itself is a bad thing. I don't think because something shows up on a screen rather than in person, it's evil. Just throwing that out there. But one thing we can agree is that media has changed culture in a way that it will never go back to the way it used to be. At one time, a social trend or a fashion trend would take years to take hold. It would move, start on one side of the nation, work its way across to the other coast. If it went across the ocean to another continent, it would take years for a fashion trend or even social trend to take place, to make its way and, and take root across the world. Now it happens in days. Now it's momentary. It's something that at one time would take years to take hold can just overnight is there. It's in our lives. And when things move slower, a new idea had time to be examined and tested before it could take hold. There was a time to vet the message before we embraced the message. We had time to look at it a little longer. We had the time to decide leaders and parents and people in authority had time to kind of vet this thing and say, is this a good idea or not? Had time to kind of be a gatekeeper to the ideas that were taking hold. And yes, the gatekeepers failed sometimes. Yes, there were bad ideas that got through. Sometimes they embraced bad ideas. But there was this time in where we could kind of confront this thing. It's like being stalked by a turtle. You have time to figure out what's happening. It's coming, but you have time to deal with it and figure out what we're going to do. So there was a time when these ideas came. You had time to figure it out. We had time to, when it started to pop up, tell our kids, hey, I know you're hearing about this, but that's not a good idea. That's dangerous. I know it seems fun, but that's, that's not good for your spirit. It's not good for your life. But now the archer has the tools to bypass the gatekeepers. Now Hollywood can put something on a screen and can send it around the world overnight before we ever can look at or know anything about it. Social media can spread a trend to kids before the parents even know it exists. It's there. The archer. Unwise and ungodly messages can spread by influencers on social media. And can I say this, please, young people? Just because somebody says something confidently or charismatically into a camera does not make it wise or right. Just because somebody looks into a camera and they say something with just the right emotion, just the right voice inflections, just the right attitude with the right music playing in the background does not mean it's a good idea. Just because 10 million people have watched the video does not make it a good idea. It doesn't make it wise advice. But that's the spirit of the archer because we can bypass a gatekeeper. We can get to where we want to get to faster. We can bypass the walls. We can shoot over the walls. We can get where we want to get. The message flies faster now. And I don't believe 
that the answer is to cut off your electricity and go off the grid. Please don't do that. Especially not mid-August, Louisiana heat. Don't do that. God's given us tools to deal with this. But we have to be aware that we're engaged in a fight with an enemy who doesn't like you, who's manipulative, and doesn't have to face you directly. We're engaged in a fight with an enemy who's not going to come knock on your front door. We're engaged in a war with an enemy who's hiding at a distance and just looking and waiting for the right moment to strike. We're fighting a master deceiver, the one who manipulates and lies. And the foothold that media has taken in our culture has transformed the way we think on an individual level. Media, especially social media, has really elevated something often called main character syndrome. Anybody ever heard of that? Main character syndrome. It's not necessarily a technical or scientific term, but it describes a real phenomenon that psychology recognizes. And main character syndrome is when somebody presents or imagines themselves as the lead or main character in a sort of fictional version of their lives. Where they're almost like your inner dialogue resembles the inner dialogue of a movie character. That you present yourself, we view everything through a lens of how does this affect me because I'm the main character of my life. And we assume that everything that's going on around us and everything that is happening is playing into a story where eventually, somehow, some way, we become the hero or the villain of our own personal story. And there's not much personal responsibility to that because the universe is just going to make things happen a certain way because I'm the main character. It's as the main character, the story of the world, of everything that's happening around us is pushing toward a moment where my unique abilities come to the forefront and they save the day. The universe is setting up a scenario that no matter what I do, no matter what is happening, at some point, I'm going to come out looking good. We don't have to deal with my issues. I don't have to deal with my struggles because as the main character, that's just part of who I am. That's part of the moment, my struggles, my failures, my inconsistencies. And God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This mindset of main character syndrome decides that I don't have to grow. I don't have to develop. I don't have to create habits and disciplines that will sustain my purpose because as the main character, at some point it's just going to happen. It's going to work out. At some point, I'm enough just the way that I am because the story of my life is really all about me. We hear Phrases about the universe. The universe is working together. First off, can I say that's witchcraft? That's new age. We got to be careful what we're listening to. Just because somebody dresses up nice on social media doesn't make it right. We got to make sure we're testing what is coming in and out of our life. We got to be careful the voices we're listening to. Because the archer is at work, the archer is moving, he's waiting till we're vulnerable. But this idea that the universe, this, this collective consciousness, everything is working toward my good. That I can think something. If I think it enough, it's going to happen. I can manifest it. It's not biblical. Because this story isn't a story of my life. And see, because I'm the main character, the obvious resolution of my story is that I end up happy. Just the way that I am. The goal of my life isn't to grow in God or become more like him or serve his kingdom by serving his creation. No, that's not why I'm here. The goal of my life isn't to promote the gospel and be a light to the broken for a heavenly kingdom. No, it's for me to feel affirmed and embraced the way that I am. It's for me to do what feels good and makes me the most comfortable. When I'm the main character 
Every word that I hear becomes my business because I'm the main character and it must be about me somehow if I heard it. Everything that happens can be taken to defense because I'm the main character. And instead of viewing others as broken people with problems just like me, I hold people to this unreal standard where they must be the villain in my story. So instead of forgiving them, I assume they're out to hurt me. Instead of giving them grace, I assume they must be trying to tear down my story. Nothing's by accident. Nothing's a result of their frail humanity. It must be on purpose or premeditated because I'm the main character of the story. This was the struggle of Ishmael. Ishmael made the mistake of assuming that he was the main character of the story. That he was the main character. Because of this, he couldn't seem to bring himself to be a supporting actor in Isaac's story. Because the story was about him. He viewed himself as the main character. And instead of viewing Isaac as the one he was there to serve, he viewed Isaac as his enemy. The one that was there to hurt him. The one that was there to destroy him. He thought life should revolve around himself. And he should be the favorite son. He should be celebrated. And he should be the hero. And it's quiet right now because this flies against in the face of everything culture says. Because culture tells us life is all about you and your happiness. And I hope you're happy, but life is not about us. The question is, if it's not my story, if it's not Ishmael's story, whose story is it? John 5, 39, Jesus was talking and said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus was telling the, the Pharisees that are reading the Old Testament and under, he told them, look, you're reading it trying to find eternal life. But what you need to understand is the story of humanity is about me. The whole story of humanity is not about Isaac. It's not about Ishmael. It's, you know, the whole story of humanity is pointing to Christ and his work that he did on the cross. That's what the story, it's not my story, it's not your story, it's not Hollywood's story, it's not some politician's story. No, all of history tells the story of Christ. Everything that has happened points to Christ. Everything points to him. It tells the story of a king who surrendered himself to the whims of his subjects. It tells the story of a judge who took off his robe of omnipotence and put on a garment of humanity. So he could take on the punishment of the guilty. Tells the story of a savior who would give his life so that mankind could be redeemed. It's the story of a God who would move heaven and earth to get our attention. But also the freedom for us to walk away if we want to. It tells the story of a God who knows all of our failures and frailty. Yet invites us to take part in his story. The Bible tells of a sovereign God who surrendered just a little bit of sovereignty. To each and every one of us so we can make the decision whether we want to follow him or not. A good, gracious God. Mark 12, Jesus took all of the law which pointed to him and stripped him down to the basics. He said, first and foremost, love the Lord your God. There's one God and you're going to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, first of all, I'm the main character of the story. So I need you to understand, First, the first commandment is I'm the, there's one main character and I'm him, you're not. He said, and everything leading up to my birth in the Bible and history has been pointing to that moment. And everything after his ascension is pointing back to the cross. And secondly, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, what I need you to do is take yourself off of my level and put yourself down on your neighbor's level. 
What I need you to do is understand you're not the main character I am. So I need you to elevate your neighbor's needs to the same level as your needs. Your neighbor's struggles to the same level as your struggles. I need you to elevate your neighbor's ministry to the same level as your ministry. I need you to elevate your neighbor's calling to the same level as your calling. I need you to elevate what your neighbor's going through to the same level of what you're going through because I need you to serve your neighbor. I need you to take part in my story by serving my creation. I need you to invest yourself into my story by investing in the people. Jesus needed us to understand that I need you to throw your pride out because we exist not to advance our story, but to advance his story. That we were created to play a pivotal part in his story being made manifest in the world today. We're saved and, and, and delivered to advance his story. My story finds significance when it fits inside of his story. My story is meant to the point to point to the work of God in the world. My story is meant to be a testimony of what happens when somebody surrenders their life to a gracious, great God. That's what my life is for. That's why I'm here. That's why everything hangs on. That there's one God and I'm supposed to love him with everything that I have. Serve him with all that I have. To give my life for him. Paul said that I'm poured out like a drink offering before the Lord. So Ishmael represents offense. He's offended by everything, but also something else. Because Ishmael was half father of faith and half sin. He was the result of compromise. He was half truth, a manipulation of truth. So the spirit of the archer, yes, it's a spirit of offense. But also it's a spirit of half truth. It's a manipulative spirit. It uses bits of truth to introduce a lie. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent used half-truth to manipulate Eve and then Adam. He didn't just hold out a fruit and say, hey, eat this. That's not what he did. He didn't drag him over to the tree and say, hey, why don't you try that fruit right there? It's not what he did. He began to question them. He said, hey, well, what did God really say to you? Do you, do you know what he really said? He started to make them question themselves. And in Genesis 3 and 4, Says, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He questioned, he said, how, know, do you really, how well do you really know the truth? He said, and don't you want to be greater than you are? Don't you want to elevate yourself to another level? Don't you want to step on God's level? Because God knows that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like him, knowing good and evil. And it was true that they would know good and evil, but they, being like God was much more than knowing right or wrong. It was having the wisdom and to know what to do with it. In essence, he said, look, if you eat the fruit, you're going to become the main character of the story. You're going to become the main character. He lied and said, the story will begin to revolve around your wisdom of knowing good and evil instead of God's wisdom of knowing good and evil. All you have to do is take God's place and own your individuality. All you have to do is just be yourself. Eat the fruit and embrace yourself. He says to embrace offense because anything that is an affront to your emotions is an affront to your autonomy. And that is the number one thing. Not being part of the body. Not being submitted to God. Not being submitted to his will. You, your individuality, yourself. And he's still introducing that lie today. He tells us that if we trust the desires of the flesh, we become the main character of the story. If you start taking care of you, 
you become the main character. And tells us that if you start worrying about yourself first, you'll find peace. You'll find what you're looking for. You'll find joy. You'll find liberty that you're looking for if you just worry about what you want first. Says if we trust our wisdom instead of God's wisdom, our desires and our dreams become the most important part of the story. And he tells us that we have the ability to stand on the stage alongside God. And our wisdom is just as valid as God's wisdom. That the wisdom of man can stand up to the wisdom of this word. And challenges the wisdom of this word. He tells us that the wisdom of human emotions, our self-centered desires, our personal ambitions are just as valid as what God wants. He says if we want to take control of our life, all we have to do is embrace autonomy and individuality. And obviously we're not all the same in the body. The body has different functions and that's biblical. But that's the half truth. Is that you can somehow separate yourself from the wisdom of this word and find peace. That somehow we can separate ourselves from the wisdom of God's commands. And we can find love and hope in all these things. Can I tell you that the archer is a liar today? The archer wants you to reject the wisdom of God's word and embrace your, your own wisdom. He tells you from a distance because he's not going to be there to save you when you eat that fruit. The archer stands back at a distance and shoots the lies because he knows he's not going to be there when life begins to crumble. He's not going to be there when things begin to fall apart because no matter how great we think we are, no matter how wise I think that I am, no matter how well put together I think that I am, I am not capable of holding my life together. I'm not I've tried it, and it didn't work. And many of you can tell you that you tried it, and when you couldn't figure it out, you reached for any kind of addiction or anything you could get a hold of because it just does not work. We were created with a desperate need for God in our life. We were created with a desperate need for his grace and his mercy and his love in our life. I wasn't created as enough. I was created on purpose with a need for God. So Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 6 tells us to take on the whole armor of God. Kyle didn't know what I was preaching this morning, so I'm glad he did that. We're told to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Tells us to put on the readiness to preach the gospel of peace as, as shoes. Then in verse 16 says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Which you, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, he's given us a shield of faith to deal with the attack, of the, with the arrows of the adversary. And this isn't necessarily talking about faith for a miracle, that a specific thing is going wrong in your life and you have to believe that God will move in a specific situation. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is faith in God's sovereignty in every aspect of our life. Trust that God is moving when I don't see it. And if I put my trust in him and I follow his commands and I follow his word and I submit myself to his story, then he's going to bring everything together. It's not the universe that's going to bring it together. It's my submission to God's will and his word that's going to bring it together. Not because of my works, but because he's a good God, and that's the promise of his blessings. So when I truly believe that God is in control, when I have faith, a shield of faith, and I truly believe that God is in control, it's then that I can withstand the attacks of the archer. It's then that I can withstand the attacks of offense. It's then that I can withstand the attacks and the lies of the adversary. 
Pastors talked about leather, he's talked about it before, the leather shields of ancient Jewish soldiers. If you didn't apply oil, it would become brittle. And it, it could be broken through. And Saul, the king of Israel, who was offended, who lived with that spirit of Ishmael, he was offended, he was angry, he wanted to destroy David because he couldn't submit to David. He couldn't see himself stepping back and letting David take the throne. So he was going to fight David with all he had. He died because an arrow came through his shield. He died because an arrow pierced his shield. And the arrow of offense from the archer is what killed Saul. Because he forgot to anoint his shield. He forgot to take care of his faith. He forgot that in the midst of his hurt and his offense to step back and say, God, yes, I made a mistake. I'll submit to your plan. Even when I'm not the main character of your plan, I'll submit and let David be the main character. But he couldn't do that. And it destroyed him. But today, with the, along with their arrow of offense, he's sending the arrows of influence our way. See, we've done a pretty good job of telling our young people, say no to drugs, say no to alcohol, say no to sex outside of marriage. But our fear, we struggle with telling them to say no to influence. That we're pretty good at seeing the swordsman. But how good are we at recognizing the archer? We're, we're good. We, 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 we've heard not don't do ungodly things. But how good are we at recognizing don't, do, don't entertain ungodly influences? The attacks of the archer. Can we recognize half-truth and manipulation? Can we recognize when it's trying to pull us away from God's word and God's truth? The archer. So the adversary knows it's going to be hard to get in your grill and fight you hand-to-hand. So he'll step back into the shadows and shoot arrows when we're not looking. Yes, he'll, he'll, he'll push you a little bit here and there. And he knows I'll get a little ways by offering a drink, but I can get a long way if I can step back and take shots from the airwaves. If I can send shots across social media. He can shoot arrows that make you question truth, righteousness, and godliness. And I know we're in the Bible Belt, and we're, we're protected, we're a little insulated. But can I tell you that the adversary is after this nation? The adversary is after the church. He doesn't like you, and he's trying everything he can to destroy you. So he can put a professor in the front of the class that belittles your belief in holy, a holy, righteous God and puts down on our kids and an influencer on Instagram that makes you question God's plan for marriage. Get quiet. He can put a compelling speaker on YouTube that can take shots and make you question, is this word real or not? He put a confused person on TikTok and wants you to question God's wisdom and God's creative design. And we sit back and say, is it real? Because the archer's shooting and we don't even see it coming. Because we begin to trust that I'm the main character of the story. It's my story. And we lose sight of our faith that this isn't about me. He's the alpha, not me. He's the omega, not me. He's the one that's going to be there, been there from before time began and is going to be there when time is over, not me. He's the one that's all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient. He's the one that's God, not me. And we see these things working together. People are offended when we don't embrace their emotions. People are angered by anyone who doesn't affirm who they are. People suppress the truth of God's word for the lies of humanism and secularism. And like I said, we're a little insulated in the Bible Belt, but it's coming to a school near you. And I don't trust my emotions and feelings enough to guide me. The Beatitudes is my favorite series we've ever done. First one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come with a spirit of beggary to God and realize I have nothing to give. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who humble themselves and realize I need God every single day of my life. 
that I don't have what it takes on my own. I am not capable of making right decisions. I need this word to discern right and wrong. I need this word to discern truth and righteousness and evil. I don't trust my ability. I have to rely on this word for God, for direction. Maybe you don't, but I do. I don't trust myself. It isn't new. The word of God has an answer for it. Romans 1, 18 through 25, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See that playing out all over. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal creatures, mortal man and birds and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul recognized that people are going to walk away from it. They were doing it then and they're doing it now. Because there's an archer. There's a spirit that's at work against them that's pulling at them. Just pulling at them and trying to get them away. This mindset of worshiping the creature more than the creator and trusting our own wisdom has produced a hopeless generation. Generation is more on antidepressants now than they've ever been. Even though we have more individuality. We have more of what we think we wanted. And we're more depressed than we've ever been. We're more confused than we've ever been. More lost than we've ever been. See, the more that people worship themselves and their emotions, the less peace we're going to find. Less peace we're going to have. But thankfully, before Paul went into that picture that we see in our world today, he gave a prescription for it. Verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, is right, is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The answer to the spirit of the archer in our world today is not running in the, with our hair on fire and, and causing problems and acting crazy out in the world. No, the answer is to go to the word and say, I'm going to trust my, put my faith in this word. I'm going to put my faith that even when I don't see it and even when the world is telling me God is losing and when everybody tells me the church is losing and the church is falling apart and the family is falling apart, that I go back to the word and say, God's word is still right. Even when I don't see it. The answer to the lies of the archer is to realize that it's not my story, but it's his story. Paul mentioned a time where people would trust in themselves to Timothy and gave this direction in 2 Timothy 4 and 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. But having an itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He told him, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. 
That word ministry means service, especially those who execute the commands of others. Paul told Timothy, he said, when the world rejects righteousness, when the world goes crazy, when the world walks out on God, fulfill the commands of another. When the world loses its mind, fulfill the commands of God. Serve the commands of God. Serve people. Do the work of evangelists. Reach people. Serve people. Help people. Do what God has called you to do. Even when they reject it and they walk out, do the work of God. He said, even when the archers at work, manipulating and deceiving, be sure to keep contributing to somebody else's story. When people are getting offended and angered by truth, be sure to keep contributing to somebody else's story. When people reject godliness and holiness and righteousness, keep pointing to the cross and do the work of ministry. When the world goes crazy and demands that you bow to their idols, be sure to keep pointing others to a story of redemption. Keep pointing to the cross. Keep your faith strong. Keep your, your shield oil. But don't forget that our faith is in a sovereign, almighty God that will protect us from the archer. I trust God. I don't trust me. I trust God. And you strengthen your faith by using your story to point others to his story. Musicians can come. What Ishmael failed to see, Isaac would later embrace. Genesis 22, God spoke to Abraham and told him to go offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So he gathered up a couple men and Isaac and they went. And they made their way three days out to the base of Mount Moriah. And they gathered the wood. And he told the two men, wait here. The lad and I are going to worship. And the Bible says that he took all the wood for the sacrifice. And it's a pretty good bit of wood here. Loaded it onto Isaac. And Isaac carried it up the mountain. With Abraham. Once on top of that mountain, Abraham took the wood that Isaac had carried up there. He laid it out. And the Bible says that he bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. Took out a knife. And just as he was drawing his hand back to kill him, the angel stopped him. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy. or Do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's a very important thing I want to point out. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Isaac was old enough to carry, some say possibly 100 pounds of wood up a mountain by this point. Very likely a strong, older teenager, possibly in his 20s. So it would put, put Abraham between 115 and 120 something years old. The story focuses on Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. And while we don't know exactly how old it was, we know that he was strong enough to carry the wood. He was strong enough to do what Abraham could not do. So, really, if Isaac really wanted to overpower Abraham, he could have done that that day. I, he could have ran at the very least. He would, there was nothing making him stay there. But Isaac was willing to be bound and laid on an altar for Abraham's story. Which was something Ishmael would never do. Ishmael would never submit himself to somebody else's story. But Isaac was willing to die for Abraham's story. See, Ishmael insisted, I'm the main character. All this is about me. But Isaac said, no, this is not about me. All this going on, yes, it's going to affect me, but it's bigger than me. Let's stand our feet.
Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, said this. John 15, 13, he said, Greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. See, we're most like Jesus when we're willing to lay down our ambitions, our dreams, our desires in our lives for somebody else. I represent Jesus the most when I lay my selfish desires aside submit myself to his purpose and his plan. I represent Jesus most clearly when I pray what he prayed in the garden when he said, not my will, but thy will be 